welcome back to the Bring It Back podcast. My name is Nathan. And I'm Micah. And we want to just have really authentic, unique conversations and try to tackle different topics that maybe you don't hear kind of navigated through the lens that we'll look at things through. We're going to use the Bible as the lens and the foundation that builds our worldview and gives us kind of the answers to some of these questions that we're talking about. So thanks for joining and let's get into it. Hey, welcome back to Bringing It Back. It's the beginning, but it's the end, but it's the end. We just did the interview. We did. uh, And now we need to do the beginning part. So we're glad you're back to the Bringing It Back podcast. Yes. After a little bit of a hiatus for whatever reason. You know the reason. There are reasons. (laughs) Uh, There are reasons, but we're glad everybody's back and we're really excited to sit down with Dr. Sam Storms. Listen, guys, I was geeking this whole episode. Sam Storms is one of my, he's probably my like theological hero. His books, incredible. His writings, his sermons. um, He is, I I honest to goodness think, one of like the greatest living thinkers that we have currently in the body of Christ today. And we are so honored that he took a little bit of time to talk with us. And also just such like a down-to-earth guy. Like yeah. No point in any time that I've like talked with him before have I ever felt like he is annoyed by my presence, has remembered my name, is just so so kind and and gracious with his time. So I know I sat through ninety eight percent of this podcast and I was quiet. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks for letting me take the lead. This no, no, no. Not even then. I think I'm just saying there's so much to to soak up. Yeah. And like I think we had a couple of good questions. Yeah. But his answers were just phenomenal. It was really helpful. Um, kind of e- even for me, just some confirmations from other teachers that I had in the past, mm-hmm. even just gentle reminders back to those things about what, what he expressed. That was really helpful for me. One thing in particular was just talking about uh, worship and singing songs. Yeah. And even if like you're not a good singer, like still choosing to embrace. Yeah. And and this is a little, you know, peak for you guys towards the end of the pod. But, you know, how do I... Uh, enjoy God and experience him, well, man, you it, it, it's like wanting to get struck by lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to set yourself in an optimal position to be able to receive yeah. that thing that you're seeking out. So uh, I'm excited for you guys to listen to it and for you to learn from it. And uh, if you do have any questions um, after this pod, encourage you to send them in. We had a couple of people send in some questions that uh, we made sure to bake into this pod yeah. um, in our interaction. So absolutely. Well, hey, enjoy this pod from us and Sam Storms, which is a crazy thing to say. Three, two, one, go. <laughs> if you are not familiar with Sam Storms, you should be. Uh, I am so excited and honored to even be sitting here and chatting with Sam. Sam has been a very big influence in my life theologically to his, his books, uh, his teachings, his writings, his blog posts in any capacity. Uh, my parents attend Bridgeway Church, where Sam used to pastor for around 10 or so years, I think even more than that, perhaps. Uh, but Sam, your your website has you listed as an amillennial, Calvinistic, charismatic, complementarian who loves your wife, which is quite the introduction. Uh, but for anybody else who maybe isn't familiar with you and your ministry, what do they need to know about Sam Storms before we launch into any conversation at all? Sure. Well, uh, I was at Bridgeway for 14 years. Uh, before that, I was born and raised in Shawnee, not far from here. Mm-hmm. Um, went to uh, moved to Midland, Texas for four years, then back up to Duncan, Oklahoma. Graduated from Duncan High School. Right. So I am a, a certified Duncan Demon. Uh, <laughs> Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the University of Oklahoma. That's where I met my wife, and we've been married. Let me get this right. I think uh, 51 years, about 51 and a half years. There's the true uh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah that's thank awesome. you. Well, you congratulate her. She's boy, she's endured a lot. <laughs> but uh, then went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I got my THM there. I uh, got my PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas. Pastored in Dallas and lived there for about 12 years. Then moved to Ardmore, Oklahoma. Pastored there for eight years then to Kansas City for seven years. And then I moved up to Wheaton, Illinois, and taught theology at Wheaton College for four years, back to Kansas City for four years, and then came here in 2008. <laughs> so uh, got two daughters, uh, four grandchildren, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a whirlwind that's, tour. 
That's quite the intro. Mine would have been much shorter than that. But we, we've got maybe a little bit less experience and maybe haven't moved around as much either. I'm I, have think, uh, I have one big move in my life, and that was to New Zealand for a year, and then I came back. Oklahoma, man. I love Oklahoma. Oklahoma <laughs> through and through. Yeah. Uh, well, Sam, it seems like, it's, even as I read your intro on your website, I, again, I'm super familiar with a lot of your stuff. It would seem as though a lot of the labels that you would give yourself are almost contradicting. It seems to be a, a common theme. So charismatic, Calvinist, complementarian, whatever it is. Um, and specifically, the one that I'm sure comes up a lot with you is is the charismatic Calvinist. And yeah. uh, this will obviously, you know, I think people hear the word Calvinist and it seems like it just ruffles feathers for a lot of people. Whereas I feel like if you were to just, you know, describe what Calvinism actually entails, they wouldn't have a problem with it until you would give it the label of Calvinism. But uh, I'd love to hear a little bit of your journey just with uh, kind of the unification of, you know, the sovereignty of God and the involvement of the Holy Spirit and a little bit of, you know, maybe how some of those ideas that would seem like they conflict actually tend to to fit yeah. seamlessly in your life. Yeah, they do seem to be mutually exclusive, uh, one of the other. I most people who are amillennial are uh, pedo-baptists. Mm -hmm. I'm a credo-baptist. I believe in believer's baptism. Most who are charismatic are egalitarian. I'm complementarian. Uh -huh. uh, most who are Calvinistic um, are cessationist, but I'm a charismatic Calvinist. So there's a lot, <laughs> a lot there that, uh, and in fact, I intentionally wrote it that way precisely to evoke the reaction that you've had. Yeah. I want people, wow, how, how is that possible? Uh-huh. Uh, and honestly, it's just simply a matter of being tethered to Scripture. Mm -hmm. I'm not tied down to any particular tradition or denomination or confession of faith. Uh, I think a lot of the a lot of them are very helpful, but um, unfortunately, some people get locked into a particular denominational mindset, and they their jobs would be at risk if they were to take a position contrary to what was written in a statement of faith. And I always have always wanted to feel the freedom to go wherever I think the Bible is telling me to go. And so those convictions that are stated there in that little bio are simply a reflection of what I think the Bible says. And it has probably put me on the outside of, uh, of many uh, otherwise very good, solid evangelical movements and groups and individuals. Because, again, they can't reconcile some of those things. But the the Calvinistic charismatic one in particular is probably the one that uh, causes people to scratch their heads. Yeah. But I, I just simply remind them, well, remember that the man who wrote Romans 9 is the same man who said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. So <laughs> wow, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, I believe Paul was uh, very much a Calvinist in terms of his theology. And yet he was also a practicing charismatic. And so if it was good enough for him, it ought to be good enough for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there there has been, a, I think, a tendency among those in the Reformed or Calvinistic tradition who put a high value on God's sovereignty to so stress the cerebral side of Christianity, the, the theological precision that is required there, that they have shut down um, any openness to the affections of the heart and the power of the Spirit. And they're afraid that to give any uh, room for the movement of the Spirit is to uh, eventually go soft on doctrine. And then those who are more charismatically inclined are fearful that uh, to talk about theology and to be really precise and rigorous in our understanding of Scripture is going to turn us into a bunch of Pharisees and a bunch of you know, um, egg-headed legalists. Mm -hmm. And uh, my aim in my ministry has been to try to uh, portray a convergence of these two, to say they are not mutually exclusive. They're absolutely essential. Uh, the Word of God does not permit us to diminish doctrine, nor does it permit us to deny or suppress the work of the Spirit and the reality of the affections of the heart. So to me, they're perfectly compatible. I know it's hard for a lot of people because some people are just hardwired one way or the other. Mm -hmm. They're hardwired in terms of their personality and their upbringing to being so theologically precise that they're terrified of the spirit. They're terrified of their emotions. Mm -hmm. Other people are hardwired so much to experience that they're terrified of thinking too deeply. They don't want to quench the spirit, as it were. Yeah, uh, and that's very sad, but that's what makes the, this such a challenging thing. Um, 
is is the fact that people are just kind of drawn to one or the other, and they don't realize that the Word of God calls us to embrace both. Hmm. Well, uh, I think it's really interesting as you mentioned that because for us, like we mentioned, we're both ORU graduates, so obviously somewhere like Oral Roberts, you're going to get a lot of you know the charismatic side. You're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of the emotions, and at least in, in some circles, not a lot of the not a lot of the theology. I mean, it feels like a lot of the pushback, at least that I've heard from people in in Tulsa, whenever it comes to theology issues, it's exactly what you're saying. You know, you don't want to end up like one of the Pharisees. You know, you're you're relying too much on on just the rules and the regulations. It's not religion; it's relationship, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, I guess I'm always curious in just like the balance between like experience and what roles experiences play in our faith life. And then what role, you know, stuff just like doctrine and theology plays in our life. And how do those intersect well? So how, how do we deal with taking experiences and, and letting them like inform our faith without dictating our faith? Sure. Well, when I hear a question like that, um, I'm turning to first Peter chapter one. It takes me to one of my favorite verses, um, where Peter is talking about, um, what happens when we go through trials, how our faith is refined. He says in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. So there he's saying that you all didn't have the privilege of seeing Jesus eye to eye as I did, but you still love him. So there's that heartfelt affection for him. Mm-hmm. And he continues, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Mm-hmm. So again, love and belief. They're the affection of the heart and the and the engagement of the mind with the person of who Christ is. The result is, he says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So rejoicing, joy, inexpressible, ineffable delight in who he is, all of which is tied to belief uh, in the truths about who Christ is and what he's done. So uh, there's so many texts that emphasize both dimensions, and I just don't see how it's possible to live uh, a really fruitful and abundant Christian life, denying or suppressing uh, either one of these. I've seen too many churches that gravitate to one extreme or another. And uh, there are some churches that it's very unpleasant to be there because they're so judgmental about every dot, jot and tittle of doctrine. And if you don't park your hair on the right side of your head, you're considered a heretic. (laughs) And then other churches where uh, even bringing up, you know, questioning maybe some certain practices that seem to lack biblical support um, is to uh, in, incur the disdain of people who say, look, you know, you're, you're suppressing the spirit, you're quenching the spirit, you're grieving the spirit. We just have to have a free for all here so that he can do among us whatever he wants. And it just seems to me we have, to, you know, I, I think of that description of Jesus, I think it's in Luke 24, where it says he was a man mighty in word and deed. Mm-hmm. In both, he didn't just preach and teach truth, but he also performed. He he displayed the power of God through the Spirit in the miracles that he performed. So again, to me, it seems like the, these two have to go together. Uh, I don't see that there's any way around it. Yeah, I am thinking about myself and my progression of faith. Like, understand, I grew up. Uh, originally a pastor's kid. My dad was a pastor in uh, Tennessee, and then we moved here for him to work at ORU. He grew up United Pentecostal, uh, and then we went to a Foursquare church. Later on, uh, ended up going to uh, Assemblies of God, and now I go to an Anglican church. So, you know, a lot of different yeah. labels that have been mm-hmm. applied in my pursuit of, of understanding relationship with God. I know that man will not be able to fully figure out the nature of God and we're doing our best. Um, And this kind of marriage of understanding we have our natural tendencies. I would say my dad by the book is, you know, uh, thoughtful when it comes to learned education, he loves to study and look at things. And then the emotional capacity by natural default isn't as present. And I would say my mom is a little bit of the opposite. She is all about the experience and what has happened and what we're going through. And then that other stuff, I know it's important, but I have a little bit of a uh, a mistrust of it. And I'm not as, it, it's not yeah. as engaging for me because it, it robs the experience. I'm their kid and I'm some <laughs> kind of hybrid of both of them. And I know I have my natural tendencies as well. But all of that setup is really kind of for this question. Why is it important for us to pursue 
uh, coming to common terminology for expression of our faith? Like, why should Micah and I really try to get down in the trenches and understand what do we really believe and how can I express that to other people? Because oftentimes when I reach a point of conflict with one of my friends who is a believer or isn't a believer, more so on the focus of the ones who are, we get to the things of tongues, like a conversations around some of the issues that if you haven't had an experience, you have an opinion. And if you have, you really have an opinion. And we mm-hmm. kind of just throw our hands up and say, ah, it's a little bit, I know what the Bible says and I know what my experience is, but let's not get too deep into that. So why is it so important for us to dig down deep and uh, study the word so that we can have something that we stand solid on whenever our faith is expressed? Well, I think the the easiest way to answer that is that if if your experience and your uh, joy and your affections are not rooted in and tethered to Scripture, you can so easily fall into idolatry. You can end up worshiping a God of your own making uh, and not the God of Scripture. Yeah. Um, and that's that's very, very dangerous. And I, I see that a lot on the part of a lot of uh, professing Christians um, is that they, uh, out of a fear of uh, being too intellectually oriented, um, they pretty much embrace any new do- novel doctrine that comes down the road. You know, we have a lot of people out there in uh, so-called ministry um, on the Internet and on TV and es- elsewhere um, who pride themselves and always come up with standing up and saying, well, you know, I- I've come up with something that I don't think anybody in the history of this church has ever seen. <laughs> sure. That's yeah. probably a reason for that. Yeah. yeah. And there's a good reason for that. Red flag. <laughs> and, uh, but, but there are people out there who they so thrive on the thrill of that kind of novel discovery that they don't take, they don't have the discipline to test it by scripture. Uh, There are churches, and I don't need to mention names, but certain churches in our country that are very quite famous, quite successful from a size and financial point of view, who, who I think oftentimes are sincere, but they're untethered to scripture. And it's just like anything goes and uh, they never really bring correction until somebody you know, challenges them and points out that um, this practice is not only not found in the Word of God, it's contrary to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's the, it's the fear of deviation from the fundamental truths of the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't understand who God is, how can you actually worship Him? Because you got to define who the Him is that you're worshiping. Yeah. You have yeah. to understand something of the nature and character of God before you can legitimately praise him for it and thank him for it and enter into a relationship with him. So I think that's the most fundamental uh, answer to your question is um, we have to be grounded in scripture. We have to be, have our, our, our beliefs and our behavior governed by the word of God. That's one of my pet peeves is I talk to people all the time about the functional authority of scripture. Mm-hmm. And I, that I emphasize that word functional. Because everybody's going to say they believe in the authority of the Bible. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. But do they let the Word of God function in an authoritative way so that their beliefs and their behavior change if they discover something other in the Word of God? In other words, if I if I believe A and the Word of God says Z, who wins? Oh, the Word of God does. Yeah. I have to be willing to subject my thinking and my behavior to the authority of Scripture. We've lost, I, th- I fear, in the, in the Christian church, we've lost that functional authority of God's Word. Mm. And I think one reason for it, and this is probably several reasons, is we've bought into this uh, concept of success in ministry. Well, if you want to build a megachurch, you want to have a huge auditorium and several thousand people in your congregation, you want to be known in the community, you want to have an influence uh, beyond the four walls of a building, uh, you have to go soft on doctrine. You can't teach truth. It'll drive people away. Um, and there's that that concept of what actually constitutes success has, has muted the gospel. It's muted God's word in the lives of a lot of pastors, a lot of people. That's a very, very profound danger we have to avoid. Yeah, it, it feels more and more like you know, when push comes to shove, one of the first things to to move is like the dogmatic nature of scripture. 
Uh, like we're very quick to just let our cultural context define our opinions on issues. Sure. It just uh, out of curiosity, is there any of those big, maybe like doctrinal issues that you feel like uh, you're currently seeing in the Western church where we are not letting the Bible be authoritative and we're interpreting like through mm-hmm. the lens of experience or even opinions? Is there any that come to mind? Sure. Yeah, I'll just give you one in particular. Um, the whole concept of inclusivism. Mm. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, the Bible is very clear that there is only one way to be reconciled with the Father, and that's through faith in the person work of Jesus Christ. Well, the inclusivist looks at our world, and, and again, this has really come about more as a result of what we call globalization. Prior to the internet, you know, if you wanted to learn about, you know, a distant people or a, a different religion, you had to go to the encyclopedia and look it up and read about it. Well, the internet has now connected everyone on the face of the earth with everyone else. And with a couple of clicks, you can be immersed on the other side of the world in a previously unknown people group, and you see their their lifestyle, their sincerity, their zeal. And I think this kind of this, this globalized mentality we have has caused some Christians to back off and say, well, wait a minute. Why should I think that faith in Christ is the only way to be reconciled with God? I mean, look at all these millions of people in these different religions, and surely they are well-intentioned and, and sincere. Mm-hmm. So we, in light of that, they allow that reality to, to reshape their thinking. They say, well, Jesus is the, the way for me to get to God, mm-hmm. but it may be Buddha for somebody else, or it may be some other a concocted deity or lifestyle for other individuals. And so we have to be more inclusive. Um, and so I think this, the, the reality of the exclusivity of Christ and the demand for personal conscious faith in Christ for salvation is being watered down because of the shift in our world. It's, and again, I hate to blame everything on the internet, but <laughs> man, it, it really has, it's shrunk the world in many ways. And you don't have to be a stranger to any other individual on the face of the earth because you've got connection to them sure. and their ways and their beliefs and their lifestyle. So that's just one way. I, I mean, there's another, uh, the whole issue of uh, sexuality. Sure. I mean, when, when I, you know, I was raised uh, in the 50s and 60s, and nobody would have ever thought that same-sex attraction in marriage or transgenderism uh, was a legitimate option. Mm. And worse now, it's not just that it's considered a legitimate option now. Now you have to endorse it. You can't just say, okay, you go live your life how you how you will. Mm-hmm. You've got to endorse what I do sexually. And if you don't, I'm going to cancel you. You know, I'm going to I'm mm-hmm. going to eliminate you. I'm going to uh, call you hate hate-filled and bigoted and prejudiced and unloving. Um so it's just all these cultural trends that we're seeing do have a profound impact on how a lot of professing Christians live and respond. Um, and there are numerous others that we could cite examples. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's really good. I want to circle back around to something you mentioned earlier when when speaking about just like knowing God and knowing like who we're worshiping. And, you know, I've heard it like we can't know God extensively here, but we can know him accurately. Um, and I think one of my my favorite works of yours is, you know, Pleasures Evermore, the life-changing gift of enjoying God. Oh, man, ate it up, shifted my paradigm in so many ways. And I think, you know, the terminology you use is Christian hedonism. And I think that's mm-hmm. another one that kind of rubs people the wrong way. So I'd love to hear a little <laughs> bit about why, why you think it is that that rubs people the wrong way. Just because when you boil it down to enjoying God, it, it seems like that's something that should never rub, rub someone the wrong way. So why is that? And then even just, I would love to hear a little bit of your journey for you know, understanding like the enjoyment of God and what role that's played in your life. Sure. Well, you know that the language Christian hedonism was coined by John Piper. I was going to ask and, about uh, Piper. I was, so my, my future brother-in-law in a few weeks actually is the biggest Piper fan I know. And he told me I had to ask if John Piper is actually as happy as he appears everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think he is. John, <laughs> John has a sober personality. I mean, he's very serious, uh-huh. but it's, a, it's um, he calls it serious joy. And I think that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I remember, I mean, this this may sound funny, but I can remember I'd been in ministry for about 10, 12 years when I heard somebody use the word, the, the verb enjoy with the noun God, enjoy God. And I remember I had never, I had never put those two words together before. 
I mean, worship God, obey God, fear God, uh, praise God. I understood, but enjoy God. It it initially struck me as kind of flippant and casual mm-hmm. and not serious enough. And then I just immersed myself in scripture and I started, I can remember the transformation when I read John's book, Desiring God. Yeah. And um, just the, 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 re- the dozens and dozens of commands in scripture to have joy in God, to rejoice in the Lord. Um, you know, Psalm 1611 quickly became my life verse. In your, um, you've made known to me the pathway of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. Mm-hmm. Or in the Psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And I came to realize that really the the most effective way to honor, glorify, and and exalt God is by enjoying Him. It's not just by understanding Him. Um, you can you can understand the character of God and memorize all the doctrines and know the verse references, but until you take delight in what you know, till you celebrate what you know and you enjoy what you know, you haven't truly exalted the object of your knowledge. Um, so that launched me on a, a path of uh, study and exploration. And uh, yeah, my book, Pleasures Evermore, people have called it Piper for Dummies uh, because <laughs> yeah, I kind of... I kind of brought it. Some people struggle with desiring God. They think it's a little too complex, but that it is just the, the notion that, uh, and, and really a, the, the primary catalyst for this was Jonathan Edwards, you know, the 18th mm-hmm. century Puritan pastor um, who uh, in his book, religious affections and another of his works talked about um, the absolute necessity of delighting in the God whom we know, because you know, you just imagine you're in a, you're in a worship service mm-hmm. and uh, you're singing a, a hymn of praise and you got kind of a scowl on your face. And um, if God were somehow able to communicate with you directly, uh, he would he'd say, Sam, what are you doing? Well, I'm worshiping you. <laughs> um, do you enjoy me in your worship? Not really. I'm here because I'm here out of duty. I'm here because that's what I'm commanded to do. I really don't have any affection for you at all. Is God going to be honored by my singing? Of course not. That's what Jesus said. What is it? Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I mean, think about that. You can go through all the motions, both speaking true theology, singing uh, hymns of praise, and your heart be disengaged from God. And Jesus says you're worshiping in vain. That's a terrifying thought Yeah, that I can go through all the motions, sing all the right words, memorize all the verses with a disengaged heart. And in doing so, it's in vain. It doesn't honor the Lord at all. So I think that uh, it's very, very important that that we engage our hearts, affections, the, the depths of our soul, our emotions, and uh, the delight in who he is, gratitude for all he's done for us. Apart from that, We'll just dry up and stiffen up and be a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, heartless robots going through life, going through the motions without any uh, heart intent or, or affections that have been awakened by the beauty of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like I love this. Uh, we talked about Shepherd's Fold right before we hopped on. Well, what, at the beginning of our call, before we started this little episode, Shepherd's Fold is a place where I know that. I got to enjoy God primarily around people that I thought enjoyed God. Uh, like my invitation into the God loves you and, and he cares about you as an individual. Um, and it's actually okay to kind of be silly. And, and and even in worship, like if something were to happen that's just kind of funny or shocking or surprising for us to say, wow, God, uh, man, operates and sometimes leaves us with questions, but he's okay for us to come and ask him those questions. Let's go spend time out in nature and ask God some of those questions and think about, I mean, one of the silly things that stands out to me is like thinking about the animals that God created and he must've had some kind of sense of personality, like a giraffe with a really long neck and a blue tongue. Like those tiny things that I I think about like, yeah, okay. So I, I do like enjoying God for me really does come back to to nature and then even just 
sitting down one-on-one. I've identified that I just love talking with people one-on-one, hearing about what God's doing in their life. And that's a way that I, I practice enjoying God is taking what he's done in my life or what he's done in my friend's life and sharing with other people. Um, and one of those things is really important to me is going on like a hiking trip once a year. It's kind of like a, a reset. So for me, enjoying God would look like going out in nature uh, or expressing what he's been doing in my life with a close friend. I'm just curious for you on like a maybe more practical basis. What does it look like for Sam Storms to enjoy God? Hmm. Well, let me say one thing up front before I answer that question. It may give a little insight into how I would answer it. I think the biggest obstacle that I had to overcome to really enjoy God is my misguided belief that God could never enjoy me. How do you enjoy someone that you think just barely tolerates you sure, and endures you and puts up with you or is disgusted with you? And so part of my journey, this gets back to the, the question that Mike asked a moment ago on my journey, um, is I, I, I always, you know, certainly I could cite John 3.16 and all the other verses about the love of God. But deep down inside, I kind of felt like God was constrained against his better judgment to love me. Maybe somehow, you know, the Lord Jesus tricked him into it. <laughs> or uh, um, this this idea that God could actually look upon me and all my brokenness and my sinfulness as a born-again believer and and actually find delight in me. Yeah. Uh, and then... You know, Zephaniah 3.17 just opened up a whole new world to me where uh, the prophet talks about how God rejoices with loud singing over his people. Uh, That just was, that was revolutionary, that God actually uh, has deep, heartfelt affections for me and delights in me as his child. Uh, Doesn't mean he delights in my sin, but he delights in who I am and who I'm becoming through the power of the Spirit. And so I, I had to overcome this fear uh, that God really didn't care much about me and that uh, love was kind of uh, constrained and not heartfelt. And when I came to understand that, it really opened my heart up to enjoy God. Um, so it's kind of a mutual enjoyment. Um, my enjoying him, his enjoying me, his enjoying my enjoyment of him. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. That was, a, that was a big hurdle for me to overcome because I you talk to most Christians and you you ask them, do you feel the love of the Father? Do you actually feel and, and have an experience of his delight in you? And most of them, if they're honest, will say no. They'll say, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can see where he might enjoy some others, but not me. I mean, look at who I am. So, uh, but getting back to getting kind of circling back around to your question, how does enjoyment of God happen in my experience? Um, I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not like you, Nate. I'm not an outdoorsman. Uh, I do love, I I do love thinking about and and seeing creation and all its beauty, but usually, uh, either on a TV screen. (laughs) I was going to say, there are some really great docs out there that take you to places you wouldn't normally be able to go. Oh yeah. So yeah, I am, I'm absolutely mesmerized by the constitution of the universe, you know, the galaxies, the sure. trillions of stars and the, the magnitude of what God has made. And that that awakens in me such delight in him. Um, but my enjoyment of the Lord comes basically in two ways. First of all, from Scripture, just digging deeply into these these incredible declarations in God's word. And the spirit awakens in me uh, a, a profound delight in the Lord. And then um Basically, in corporate worship, I, if I had one thing to do in all of life, uh, it would be to spend time with other Christians in corporate worship and celebration. I experience God's affection, his nearness. I see his beauty. I'm awakened to the magnitude of his grace in context of worship. So music is, uh, although I'm not necessarily musically gifted, um, <laughs> music uh, is uh, absolutely foundational, essential role in my experience of the Lord. Uh, it's when I'm worshiping the Lord that the Spirit affects me in ways that uh, otherwise might not happen. Mm. 
it feels like there's a fine line and uh, a lot of the rejection from uh, honestly it feels like a lot of maybe the more reformed crowd when it comes to worship is you know uh, we're we're just stirring up emotions um mm-hmm. and we're boarding our emotionalism i i guess what is your initial response to something like that um, yeah because because it feels like emotions no way around it like do play a role in like our worship Absolutely. um so i guess how, how do we engage that argument what do you do with statements like that sure. it's like yeah. Uh, again, I was greatly helped by Jonathan Edwards on this point. Um, let me just kind of bring it into the 21st century here. Um, if our worship is not designed to ignite, awaken, and intensify our affections for God, why do we sing? What's the purpose of singing? Why don't we just project the words on a screen or have them in a in a hymn book and let's just recite them without any musical accompaniment, without any instrumentation. Edward's point was that we sing precisely to awaken our affections. That is, that is the purpose of it. Singing gives expression to deeply held beliefs about God that merely talking could never accomplish. There are, you know, when, when we sing, when we engage with God at that level uh, of personal interaction, there is... Um, there is a heightened sense of joy and peace and hope and delight in him that would never happen if we just read the words on a page or read the words off a screen at the front of the church. So Edwards made the point, he said, uh, he said it is precisely in order to intensify our affections that we worship. It's precisely in order to deepen our peace and our joy and our delight and our fear and our zeal in God that we sing uh, with musical accompaniment. Um, so I don't see when people say, well, you know, it's just a just a feeling trip. Uh, you want to experience heightened emotions in worship. I say, absolutely I do, because there are emotions that are a response to the grandeur of God. There are my affections and feelings that are awakened uh, when I see God in all his beauty and I give expression to it in singing. Um, I'm, I'm not a... Now, I'm not saying that that means anything goes. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you should ever try to uh, concoct or produce emotions artificially or that you aim for some feeling as an end in itself. That's mm-hmm. emotionalism. I'm, I'm adamantly opposed to that. Right. But I'm talking about emotions and affections that are awakened by truth mm-hmm. are precisely what honor God more than anything else. So it's this... Um, you know, Edwards was very oftentimes would say, in order for there to be heat in the heart, there has to first be light in the head. In other words, there has to be understanding, yeah. illumination, clarity about who God is, but they can't stop there. That has to ignite within us uh, joy and delight and and peace and hope and all the other affections that the Word of God talks about. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned even earlier, and uh, this is something you have a little section about in your writing, um, of the idea of like worshiping when we don't want to. So mm-hmm. even as you mentioned earlier, we don't want to begrudgingly come to worship. So then I, I guess, what is the correct response? Because there are realities of times where I'm sure like, you know, you don't feel like being around a ton of people. You don't necessarily right. like your first choice is not corporate worship. So even in that, if our response shouldn't be begrudging, I guess, what is the the correct response and how do we still find I, I, how do we still feast on the presence of God? I think it's some of your terminology. Yeah. Well, the uh, I, I would start with this. If you find yourself begrudging singing and celebrating the Lord, if you find yourself um, that it's a strain, that you don't, you don't really want to be there, but you feel like it's your duty as a Christian, mm-hmm. that in itself, uh, is the place to begin. It's, it's like, Lord, I come to you. I got to be real honest. I don't feel anything for you today. Uh, but Lord, I'm going to go ahead and sing because I know you, you're you worthy of it. And I'm going to do it trusting that the Spirit of God will use this experience to awaken and ignite my affections for you once again. So if, if, if people often say, well, um, if I don't feel something profound, I'm not going to sing at all because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not being a hypocrite. You're basically saying, I am so desperate for the Lord's presence. I'm so desperate to feel his love for me and his commitment to me that I'm willing to step out and obey the command 
even though at present I don't feel anything, with the hope and the expectation that God will move in my heart and awaken that. Let's take, for example, um, you know, the Psalms several times talk about a thirsty deer in the desert panting after water. So just envision this deer that's about to die of thirst, and it sees out in the distance this oasis, this, this incredible pool of life-giving water. What honors God most? Is it the deer um, actually slaking his thirst? He reaches the water, he, 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 he quenches his thirst, or is it the desperation and the panting and the hunger for that water even though he hasn't yet drunk from it. And I would say it's both. I, I see a Christian who, who, is, who knows that there's no other option other than to press into the heart of God and move past the, the lifelessness of the, their heart to fully and finally engage with him. That in itself is worship. In other words, when I, when I acknowledge that I don't feel anything, but I want to, that honors God. He says, you know, I'm, I'm worthy of your wanting to, even though you haven't moved into the reality of it yet. It's like that deer out in the desert. You look at that deer and you say, my goodness, that deer is really honoring and magnifying that oasis and the water that it contains. Not so much by drinking from it, but by so being so desperate for it that if he doesn't get it, he's going to die. Hmm. So, you know, it's uh, uh, I, do, I would just say to people who aren't feeling anything, go ahead and sing anyway. It's not hypocritical. It's your way of saying, I know what I want. It's not there yet, but I'm going to obey the command of Scripture, trusting that God is going to bring it to pass at some point in the future. Well, this whole time that we've been sitting here talking, all I can think about is how so much of what you say seems like it would make so many of the Reformed people a little bit uncomfortable, but yet you, again, you identify as how, and I guess, as we start to wrap up, because we want to, you know, honor your time, I, I think a question I have, which is like kind of a joke, but also kind of not, is not not to blanket statement, but I think for a lot of interactions and with a lot of the connotations that come along with Calvinists, they just feel kind of grumpy. Do you yep. have any <laughs> idea like why that is? Why do Calvinists yeah. seem grumpy? Yeah, uh, you've probably heard of the cage stage. Um, that's we used to refer to that as when somebody embraces the doctrines of grace and reformed faith, you probably should lock them away in a cage for a couple of years okay. until they grow up and mature and learn how to get along with other Christians. Uh-huh. Uh, I can remember going through the cage stage and yeah. I had it is like my life's calling was to uh, convert all my Arminian friends to my theological. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And, um, and I was mean spirited and judgmental and intolerant and impatient. Mm-hmm. And uh, a person who believes in the sovereignty of God's saving grace, above all else, humility should be the first reaction oh. that God would actually set his saving love on me. Good grief. They mm-hmm. talk about something that doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I think uh, what happens is that there is such a profound joy in seeing the truth of Scripture about God's sovereignty and salvation, it just opens up whole new vistas of understanding that anything that um, that might pose a potential threat to that is strongly resisted. And again, it's this idea that if I'm thinking deeply about the things of God and who God is, that if I allow any kind of emotional reaction or if I'm if I'm pursuing God for the joy that is to be found in Him, I'm somehow corrupting the truth. I just need to think right. I don't need to. I don't need to feel anything. I need to think right, and point out to you how you're thinking wrong. Um, that mentality is is uh, a death knell to true joy in God. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could go on forever on this. It, I just I would just <laughs> say that uh, that. Nothing will do more to awaken your affections and your joy in God than a deeper understanding of who he is and how he operates and what he does and why. Hmm. So I, but let me say one other thing. I have found that in many cases, this is not all I'm, this is more a personal confession of my former way of living. Mm -hmm. A lot of reformed people. And I put myself in this category. I'm not accusing anybody else of it. Mm-hmm. They're obsessed with image. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They want to be perceived by other people as intellectually rigorous and uh, not naive and in complete control of themselves. And they want to project this image of strength and stability, all of which is good, mm-hmm. but they see anything that would stir up their hearts. Like that kind of a person would never be caught dead weeping in a church service or during worship or raising their hands or giving any public display of delight in God because that threatens the image they want to project to to other people. And I think Reformed people are far more concerned about that than people of other theological persuasion. So, man, my response to that is Calvinistic Christians ought to be the very first ones uh, to give full display to the affections they have for God. Yeah in light of what they believe God has done for them in Christ. So those are just some of the reasons why. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. There was a, one part of your answer back to that question I had about what does it look like for you to enjoy God, the beginning part where you uh, identified that for you in particular, and then maybe an invitation for others, is uh, that changing your perspective about how God views you was essential to your enjoying of him. Um, and I, I think that's, true for me. Mm-hmm. I can think of a specific moment in my life where that revelation took place and I felt like, okay, I think he does love me, not just because he has to, but there's something in me that he just loves. Mm-hmm. What what kind of uh, encouragement could you give to someone um, who maybe hasn't had that revelation yet? Um, what is the truth that you can tell them about the way God does see them? Well, obviously, I would direct them to just countless texts of Scripture that that speak of this. Um, And then I would say to them, you have to pray. You have to, you know, pray Ephesians 1, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would awaken your heart to the immeasurable riches of what it means to be a child of God, Um, to consistently put yourself in a posture where the affections of the heart can be awakened and intensified. Uh, oftentimes we, uh, you know, we, we ignore the, what we call the means of grace, reading the scripture, prayer, fellowship with other Christians, uh, worship, um, fasting, uh, all the many things that, you know, uh, being faithful at the table of the Lord on Sundays. Um, we have to be faithful to employ the means that God has given us. Again, Jonathan Edwards, <laughs> He used a great, he had great language of this. He said, our responsibility is to lay ourselves in the way of allurement. And what he meant by that is take steps to engage those practices and those places and those moments where you are more than likely to be allured by the beauty of God than you otherwise would be. If I can use a silly illustration. Yeah. If somebody came to me and said, you know, I've never been struck by lightning. I'd like to know how that feels. What should I do? <laughs> so, well, you need, you need help, fella. But sure. <laughs> serious, just take an iron rod and go out on the top of a hill and climb up in a tree during a thunderstorm and hold the rod up in the air. Mm-hmm. Yep. That greatly increases the likelihood that you're going to be struck by lightning. Yeah. Now, don't, don't go do that, of course. Nice. But somebody says, I want to be struck by the reality of who God is. I want, I want to be quickened. Uh, in the in the totality of my being, not just in my mind, but in my heart, my emotions, my will. How do I do that? Well, take steps that are outlined in Scripture to where you would more greatly increase the like the likelihood or the probability of encountering God in a life changing way. Yeah, um, that would be my advice to them, and that would be worship, prayer, Word of God, memorizing it, meditating on it. Hanging out with other Christians who have the same desires that you do. Yeah. You know, don't hang out with just with those who are a bunch of killjoys and are afraid of feeling yeah. anything. Right. Because uh, you get encouragement from others who are on the same path that you're on. Yeah. Well, that that's all great. And again, we are so appreciative of your time. The last thing that I will ask is we always we always give like our own music recommendations at the end of our shows. So I'm gonna ask for for one book recommendation that if you're just talking to anybody, you're like, man, this book changed my life. You gotta listen or you gotta read it. And then a music recommendation, whether it be album, artist, song, maybe a guilty pleasure song, if you will, but I would love <laughs> a recommendation for one of each. Oh my goodness. You can't see 
on the left and the right from floor to ceiling are all these books. So you have to think of just Pick one. Yeah. Um, well, I'll recommend two. Uh, yeah. I've already mentioned Desiring God by John Piper. Yeah. And the other would be Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. And in recommending that book by Edwards, a lot of people get excited and they dig into it and they quit after about five or 10 pages. Yeah. Because his prose is sometimes hard to decipher. Mm -hmm. So I have actually rewritten Religious Affections. I wrote a book okay. called Signs of the Spirit and it's published by Crossway. And I've just, I've taken the, the massive religious affections and I've kind of rewritten them in a contemporary conversational way uh, that makes sense to people today who have a hard time understanding why a Puritan would say the things that he says. Mm -hmm. So Desiring God Religious Affections are probably uh, the most important ones that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. um, music. Oh, good grief. Now you're going to surprise us. I thought that you've recorded a song. You've rewritten a song and you went, nah, just kidding. <laughs> no, haven't done that. Gosh, I, I don't even think I could begin to, um, man, goodness. <laughs> I don't think there's any an album or any particular, uh, you know, a couple of singers that I really enjoy. Um, gosh, um, Kim Walker Smith, love her stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, gosh, Jeremy. You got an Riddle. answer for the. You got an answers for the hardest questions. But as for a music recommendation, <laughs> you're having a hard time. I could give you. I could give you lots of songs. Yeah, the goodness of God is one of my favorites. Yeah, Living Hope is another one of my favorites. Yeah. Graves into Gardens is another one that I love. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I could go on forever. Give me yeah. a list of those things. are Those are great. Well, hey, again, Sam, we are so, so thankful for your time today. And it has been an incredibly fruitful conversation. And uh, we are just so appreciative of your time. So, man, I, I would love to, you know, hopefully see you again at Bridgeway someday, maybe around the holidays when I'm back home with old Todd and Julie. They listen. They'll hear their names. They always look at me. Well, hey, again, right. thanks, Sam, so much. We're so thankful for you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, guys. <laughs>